0: Welcome to Bee's Estrogen Empire. The Estrogen Empire is a brand new series focused on breaking down various topics in women's health. It's time for us to create an empire of women who are informed and assertive and can advocate for their health and the health of women around the world. I'm Bee the host of Bee's Estrogen Empire, and I'm very privileged to have a voice and feel confident enough to discuss these topics. I would like to take a moment to recognize that not all women have female anatomy, and not all female anatomy classifies someone as a woman. The empire will use evidence-based information to guide topics and discussions. All references will be included in the show notes, and I'm so excited that you're here to join the estrogen empire and the movement that we are about to create. Welcome along. I would like to begin this episode with just letting everyone know that this is a trigger warning. If you are someone who has experienced disordered eating in the past or is currently dealing with disordered eating, this episode may be triggering for you. If you experience negative thoughts following this episode, please give the National Eating Disorders Association helpline a call at 1-800-931-2273. They offer support Monday to Thursday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Once again, that is the National Eating Disorders Association helpline at 1-800-931-2273. This is a trigger warning. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crazy Beautiful Life podcast and the Estrogen Empire series. I'm B, the host of The Crazy Beautiful Life, and I'm super happy that you are here to join me. Um, I think the conversations that we are going to have today are super, super important moving forward and going out and sharing them with the world. I know this episode was supposed to go up yesterday, but you guys, I am out in the middle of nowhere, and that means that my internet isn't very good, which means... Getting my research papers to inform the episode and downloading the PDFs and reading them takes a super long time, and uploading everything takes a super long time. (laughs) So, I really appreciate your patience. So, happy Tuesday! Uh, You guys know I just love the beginning of the week. Monday, Tuesday are my favorite days, they really give us the opportunity to set our intentions, themes, and goals for the week. I just love the beginning of the week, and I love that we get to spend it together and we get to talk about some really interesting topics um, as we move into the week and sort of spread our love with the world. Once again, I'm super overwhelmed with all of the feedback I received following last week's episode. All the messages I've been receiving have been so kind and in a time like this, your messages truly go a long way and they mean so much to me. Last week, we talked about endometriosis. If you don't know what endometriosis is, I would strongly encourage you to listen to that episode. I think it's really important that we sort of get the conversation about endometriosis going um, so it's not such a quote-unquote taboo subject. It's not so hush-hush and really get it out there in the open because it is underfunded, under-researched, and not taken seriously within society. The week before that, we talked about vaginissimus. Um, If that word sounds like total craziness or vaginal stenosis, you have no idea what I'm talking about, I would strongly encourage you to give that episode a listen as well. We talk about the different perspectives of what causes vaginissimus and what we can do as an empire to sort of uh, bring some attention and raise some awareness regarding vaginissimus. I hope you are all self-isolating and doing your part in stopping the spread of COVID-19. It's imperative that during this time we all work together to slow this down and get it under control. I'd like to give a special mention to all of my listeners who are healthcare workers and those who work in essential services. If you are a stock, stock clerk at a grocery store, if you are one of the cleaning people in a hospital, if you are a paramedic, a nurse, a PSW, anyone who is out there still working in essential services, you're all doing so amazing and I can't thank you enough for all of your efforts. As you guys know, um, I have been in quarantine—not necessarily quarantine. I'm not sick. I don't have any symptoms. I wasn't traveling. Um, I'm just in the same situation as everybody else. Um, but I haven't been in school since I think March. Let me just peep at my calendar. Yeah, March 16th was when things started started going crazy. So just about two weeks now, which is kind of crazy. And throughout the last two weeks, I have been spending a lot more time online scrolling through Instagram and Facebook my screen time app has been reminding me just about how much time I've been spending online and it's not good I need to get it under control because final exams are coming and final projects and stuff like that but during my time of you know, hours of scrolling, I've noticed that there's been a huge, huge flux online for at-home workouts, at-home diet plans, tips and tricks to stay slim at home, and at-home weight loss interventions. There's so many pages and series that are currently coming out with at-home fat blasters, meal plans for keeping your six-pack while on the couch, and so much more online health and fitness influencers are truly thriving right now and their markets are absolutely booming. Something I've really been enjoying doing is um, at home yoga. You guys know I love yoga. Um, So having that sort of online content and presence has been amazing for increasing my accessibility to yoga because everything is closed I can't go do a yoga class at good life um, which really sucks I can't go do a yoga class at gold ring with my roommates so having this sort of online platform has been really beneficial for increasing my accessibility and a ton of other people's accessibility to at-home fitness and at-home health and wellness if you will We're going to get into why those terms may be a little confusing. (laughs) As someone who uh, grew up playing sports, I've been a varsity athlete for all five years of my undergrad. I played rugby for 10 years. I did gymnastics, figure skating. I played every single sport in high school. And as someone with a background in kinesiology, you guys know I am a few weeks away from my bachelor's of kinesiology degree. I like truly truly honestly in my core value the role of physical activity in the promotion of both physical and mental health um, as well as eating uh, nutritious and... I'm not going to say balanced (laughs) eating a nutritious diet to support health and wellness. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that we should all be sedentary and we shouldn't utilize online tools and we should eat like crap and just do whatever we want. I'm not going to do that because there are several metabolic complications that can arise with having a, a high BMI or being metabolically unhealthy. But I also understand that the jargon that we use to promote this wellness can create troublesome mental complexes that evoke feelings of guilt for an activity, body image issues, decrease self-confidence, and a need to change our physical appearance. Oftentimes, I feel like these fitness programs and weight loss programs capitalize on our insecurities and then profit off them. They make us feel like we have fat to burn, abs to shred, legs to tone, and calories to shed. For example, a fitness influencer on YouTube is not going to title their video 30-minute hit for cardiovascular capacity and mental wellness or 30-minute hit to increase longevity and reduce the risk of cancer. They're going to title their videos 30-minute hit for toned legs and a tighter booty or 30 minute hit for burning 450 calories at home. When we read titles like these, we select programs and activities that specifically target our insecurities, and then they let us know that we have the ability to change them. So although online fitness and diet programs have been effective in getting people up and moving when they're housebound and really just increasing accessibility overall, I think the ways in which these programs are promoted is super important to look at through a critical lens. Now, I'm someone who is fairly confident in most aspects of my life. I mean, most of you guys know me in my personal life, and I'm just kind of one of those people who... I do what I do, I say what I say, I dress how I want to dress, I'm not like weird about going out with no makeup, nine times out of ten I don't even wear makeup, so I'm super fortunate in that I'm pretty confident in most aspects of my life, so these types of workout programs that focus on fat loss, weight loss, toning, and slimming, they don't really have conscious, bold, underline, exclamation mark, conscious negative implications for me personally but I can't help but to think about the subconscious damage that they may be propagating in myself and women around the world. Another important thing to note is that there are tons of fitness influencers and content creators doing amazing things online and bringing together women of all different cultures and promoting health and wellness and mindfulness and exercise that makes you feel good. But there are also a lot of people online letting us know how they lost 30 pounds in two months or advertising weird eating patterns to maintain a six pack. And these types of videos are getting a lot of traction online. Majority of the information online regarding fat loss, weight loss, and eating isn't from dieticians or nutritionists. And this isn't to say that there aren't extremely intelligent, self-educated people online, but there are also a lot of people promoting what is potentially disordered eating. So because there's so much going online about what to eat and when to eat it, Many girls and women of all ages enter this gray area where the conversation about what is healthful eating and what is harmful eating truly begins. Food is something that connects every single person on this earth. We all must eat. But what happens when a person's desire to be thin overpowers their desire to eat? What happens when our relationship with food becomes a mechanism to demonstrate control and power rather than a mechanism for health and wellness? What happens when people begin a cycle of restrict, binge, guilt, repeat? Today we are going to talk about a very challenging subject, eating disorders and disordered eating. We will discuss the different types of eating disorders that are currently recognized in the DSM-5 and the different perspectives regarding what causes eating disorders and what we can do as the estrogen empire, my gals, what we can do to sort of challenge and change the status quo about the media and what goes on within the media. Once again, B's Estrogen Empire is not a diagnostic tool, but rather a tool for advocacy and awareness. If any of the things that I mentioned in today's episode really hit home with you and you feel as though you may be suffering from an eating disorder or disordered eating, I strongly encourage you to reach out to your family physician or primary health care practitioner. You deserve to be happy and healthy, so please seek help if you are struggling. As always, the estrogen empire uses evidence-based research to guide conversations. So let's talk about some of the terminology that we are going to use today. I wanna first outline that the terms eating disorder and disordered eating are not mutually exclusive. They are not the same words. Eating disorder and disordered eating, not the same. Got it? Cool. So we can sort of view this as a spectrum, if you will, with healthful eating on the left, disordered eating in the middle, and then eating disorder on the right. The DSM-5, which I'm sure you guys have all heard about, is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, currently recognizes four main eating disorders. The first eating disorder is anorexia nervosa. I'm sure we've all heard of anorexia before, and we can probably picture... In our head, uh, what we think someone with anorexia may look like. Um, it's characterized by disturbances of how the person experiences their body and their weight, and they sort of partake in really persistent behaviors that interfere with maintaining a healthy weight. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of all eating disorders, with an increased risk of cardiac arrest kidney failure and suicide the second eating disorder outlined by the dsm-5 is bulimia nervosa this eating disorder is characterized by food restriction followed by a binge episode which is the consumption of a large quantity of food Followed by a purge. If you don't know what a purge is, this can be induced vomiting, abuse of diuretics or laxatives, and or excessive exercise. In order to be diagnosed with bulimia, um, it needs to the the binge episodes followed by a purge need to occur at least once a week for three months. The third eating disorder recognized by the DSM-5 is um, binge eating disorder. Now, this is similar to bulimia, but different. The main difference between bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder is that in binge eating disorder, there is no sort of compensatory behavior. There's no purge. It is just the consumption of large quantities of food, um, usually a loss of control, ignoring hunger cues so you are just eating tons and tons and tons regardless of how you may feel and then there's no um sort of binge or sorry there's no sort of purge following that binge eating episode The fourth section of eating disorders in the DSM-5 is other disorders otherwise not specified. So these types of eating disorders are the ones that are less common and they don't necessarily fit into one of the categories above, one of the categories above, one of the categories that we just talked about, but they are significant enough to cause sufficient disturbances in the person. So The disturbances are sufficient enough to be classified as an eating disorder. So those are eating disorders, but what about the different eating patterns or obsessions or fixations that may not necessarily fall into these classifications, but can cause a lot of negative health implications themselves or could lead to possible pathology or an eating disorder down the road? This is disordered eating. So what is disordered eating? Disordered eating is defined as troublesome eating behaviors, um, such as purging with exercise and or diuretics, food restriction, obsessive calorie counting, frequent attempts to lose or control body weight, consuming excessive amounts of foods. Um, There's another one that's called orthorexia, which is when you are on the complete opposite side, you are obsessed with like health, your idea, idea, I'm doing a quote unquote health. Um, that it really like controls your life and like you can't eat anything unhealthy, um, things like that. So disordered eating is not necessarily always less severe than an eating disorder, but we do sort of view them along this sort of spectrum where we have healthful eating and then uh, disordered eating and then eating disorder. So, Uh, Disordered eating could possibly lead to an eating disorder down the road or disordered eating patterns could um, be very alarming and raise a lot of red flags for possible, possible pathology later on. It can be really important to identify abnormal eating patterns or abnormal relationships with food early on before they become too severe but what is normal eating we've discussed throughout the estrogen empire series that normality in of itself is a social construct what's normal for me and what's normal for you are very different what's normal eating for me and my food preferences and my basal metabolic rate which is the amount of calories that i need to support basic life functioning um What's normal for me and the amount of food that I need to eat and the amount of veggies that I need to eat and protein and all of those things and what's normal for you are likely, likely very, 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 very different measures. So let's interchange this word normal eating with what is healthful eating. So determining what is healthful eating has been a really interesting topic in the literature. Um, The World Health Organization sort of brings... This biophysical approach where they say that we need to eat this many things from these many categories, um, but they don't actually address uh, relationships with food or psychological implications with food. So from the book, uh, Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family, they define healthful eating as flexible and variable responses to hunger, food availability, availability, feelings, and your schedule. This book discusses how meal plans can be very appropriate for meeting nutritional requirements, especially if you are a busy bee, but they shouldn't control one's life. They shouldn't consume more psychological energy than any other day-to-day process. Another piece of literature that I found outlined that it is part of being human to crave certain foods, eat more in social settings, However, it's not part of being human to ignore hunger cues and feel guilt and shame when eating certain foods. Now, I'm sure that when we say the terms disordered eating or eating disorders, we think of a very specific body type. If you close your eyes right now and listen to me saying eating disorder and disordered eating try and picture what you think someone that would have one of those two ailments uh, would look like possibly very thin or underweight um, maybe slim maybe they have a wee bit more bony prominencies um, you know sort of on that more slender spectrum if you will now I want you to listen to me tell you that anyone can have an eating disorder and their bodies can look extremely different. Someone can look like the healthiest person in the world and they can have an eating disorder. Someone can have a high um, body fat composition or high adiposity, just means lots of adipose tissue, and they can have an eating disorder. Someone can look like a bodybuilder or a physique competitor and they can have an eating disorder. Someone can just look like a normal average person and they can have an eating disorder or disordered eating the this sort of body type idea that you have to look a certain way in order to be taken seriously for your eating disorder is just not the case marcus and wilds 2004 analyzed the association between disordered eating and obesity they found that obesity is strongly linked to binge eating disorder now remember binge eating disorder does not have a purge Most commonly reported in the literature is a loss of control during binge episodes. And this loss of control has been reported in a large range of BMIs, body mass indexes, or fat compositions, if you will, showing that this loss of control is not exclusive to the obese cohort. And it's characterized by an inability to stop eating regardless of consuming large amounts of food. People also report that during their loss of control binge episodes, they can't control the rate by which the food is consumed. So they tend to eat really, really quickly um, and really put themselves at risk for choking and other things happening um, And it's really, it is truly out of control. Like people feel like something just comes over their body and they are going to eat as much as they possibly can, as fast as they possibly can, very quickly. Smith and Robbins, 2013, investigated the possibility of a relationship between food addiction and binge eating disorder. And they found that this relationship was in fact statistically significant. Roger, or sorry, Smith and Robbins then looked at the DSM-5 definitions of addiction and binge eating and they found that the definitions were very, very similar. Their work showed that binge eating and addiction can be linked um, as they both explain an inability to stop the behavior despite being well aware of the negative consequences. So as we can tell, um, eating disorders and disordered eating do not discriminate based on body types. But eating disorders and disordered eating also do not discriminate based on gender. Both men and women experience eating disorders and disordered eating. However, women experience this to a greater extent. More et al. 2009, which is down in the show notes if you would like to read that study... They found that girls and women are more likely than boys or men to report weight dissatisfaction, dieting for weight control, and the use of purging. The study also found that 29% of women experienced loss of control with regards to binge eating, whereas this loss of control was only reported by 8% of men. They also found that 22.5% of women reported daily body checks, whereas 8.9% of men reported body checks. I really want to talk about body checks for a second, because the first time I ever heard of this term body checks was during my women's health lecture during class. And it honestly shook me. I was sitting there and If I wasn't in public and if I wasn't around my classmates, my jaw probably would have dropped. That's because I literally did not realize that I body check every single day. Every day in the morning, I stare in the mirror and... I'm like, hey, am I chubbier or am I thinner? What's going on here? And it's not even something like I think about. It's, it's just like this autonomic process. I just do it every single morning. And I didn't even know that body checks were a thing until I heard of the term during class. And now that I'm aware of it, I'm like, holy smokes. Like, I, I do that. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was a thing. Another study that I looked at regarding the prevalence of eating disorders outlined that the prevalence ratio for women compared to men is 10 to 1. And that statistic is from the American Psychiatry Association. So why do these differences for men and women exist? What is it about being a woman that makes us feel more likely to experience both eating disorders, disordered eating, and body dysmorphia? There are three different perspectives that can be used to understand why women are more likely to experience disturbances related to body image image than men. So, in science, there are different things that make people more likely to experience a health complication. We call these things risk factors. So, Jacoby, Zwan, Hayward, and Agras are a group of researchers. Two are from Stanford and I think University of Virginia and one other university, and they came together to explore the different risk factors associated with eating disorders. They proposed that there are biological or biophysical ailments that can increase someone's likeliness of experiencing an eating disorder. They found that individuals who have experienced gastrointestinal problems in early childhood are twice as likely to experience an eating disorder compared to those who have not. They also found that adults experiencing gastrointestinal problems um, are also more likely to experience disordered eating or eating disorders than their controls. This somewhat makes sense. You know, gastrointestinal problems are usually syndromes like Crohn's, colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, to name a few. So it makes sense that that ailments specifically associated with food consumption, like even heartburn is another example, um, they can sort of alter your relationship with food and possibly lead to disordered eating or eating disorders. Another biophysical risk factor for um, obtaining or experiencing an eating disorder or disordered eating that this study found was childhood obesity. So, of the 59 women studied, 33% of those with binge eating disorder were obese um, during childhood, and 40% of those with bulimia were obese during childhood. So, being Having gastrointestinal issues, um, being obese during childhood, those are a few of the biophysical or biological implications or risk factors for experiencing an eating disorder. But I don't really want to focus on the biophysical aspect too much because I think that the psychological and sociological risk factors are more likely the cause. There's an extensive amount of research that has been dedicated to exploring eating disorders from a psychological perspective, which makes sense because eating disorders and disordered eating are a psychiatric condition. So there is a ton of psychiatric and psychological disturbances that increase someone's risk of experiencing an eating disorder. This list is incredibly long. I wanted to pull out a few um, for us to talk about in the Empire that I thought were very important. So sexual violence is a major risk factor for eating disorders. And it has been shown that not only childhood sexual violence, but teen and adolescent and adulthood sexual violence all increase someone's risk of experiencing an eating disorder. I found a meta-analysis, and I know I like to use big terms during the estrogen empire. If you don't know what a meta-analysis is, um, that's okay. It's basically when you take a whole bunch of studies on a similar topic and mush them all together into one paper. So this meta-analysis that I found included 10 different studies with regards to eating disorders, and sexual violence, and they found that people with eating disorders had significantly higher rates of sexual violence than their controls. So 34% of women with eating disorders had experienced sexual violence prior to their eating disorder, whereas 20% of women without eating disorders experienced sexual violence. People with any sort of psychological disturbances are more likely to experience eating disorders. Um, This can partly be explained by a need for control and power over one's life when they feel like they may not be able to control anything else. Another thing commonly reported in the literature is um, disturbances in the home can cause a lot of children to sort of fall into these disordered eating or eating disorder tendencies. So there's a lot in the home life that's going on that is altering the psychological wellness of the child and therefore propagating or increasing their risk of experiencing an eating disorder. Something else that's been studied recently is personality and how personality can possibly predict the risk factor or likeliness or sorry. I think it's RR, risk ratio of obtaining or experiencing an eating disorder or disordered eating. And some of these papers have found that people who are more type A personality, typically high achievers, do well in school, do well in life. They um, are very organized, uh, neat freaks, control freaks. Those sorts of like type A people are more likely to experience eating disorders or disordered eating. I know we can talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about the various psychological risk factors that may increase the likeliness of experiencing experiencing an eating disorder. But I really want to talk about the sociological factors such as the media, social media, fitness influencers, and more. Throughout history, our ideal feminine body has evolved a lot. It's still evolving. It is constantly changing about what we think the ideal or most beautiful feminine body is. Back in the day, we thought that women who were larger, that was a sign that they had more money, they could feed themselves, um, and they were deemed more beautiful. And then we moved into like this really super slim and bony sort of uh, body in the 80s that we thought was the most favorable, the most beautiful. And now we're sort of in this area where having a super slim waist and a super large butt is favorable, now, this ideal body is a direct reflection of what's going on in the media. The Kardashians are huge right now. They're likely bigger than they've ever been. And I, I don't mean like size-wise. I mean like famous-wise. They're huge. They're everywhere. Everyone knows who the Kardashians are. Everyone sees their photos and their their makeup lines and skincare and the products that they're selling and the products they are promoted and all of these favorite things. And they all tend to sort of have this super, super, super small waist and then this large butt. Put on your favorite rap or trap music video right now. And what's the first thing you notice? Super skinny waists with super large booties. Cardi B is also known for having this type of body. Jennifer Lopez, Beyonce, Iggy, Nicki Minaj, and so many more women really sort of brought the idea of small waist and big butt is the most beautiful body in today's society. We've taken that so called hourglass figure and we just went crazy with it. And we took it to an extreme where now people are selling waist trainers that you can wear to bed and these different methods that I've seen on YouTube where you wrap your torso in saran wrap and it makes you sweat so much in your sleep, you get rid of all your water weight and you're skinny in the morning. Um, we've also seen a huge influx of skinny teas and people promoting skinny teas to sort of help us achieve this ideal quote unquote, I'm quoting this really hard, (laughs) body that everyone is talking about. Now there were some people, some um, models such as Tyra Banks, who really brought the idea of being curvy as acceptable. I'm a huge fan of Tyra Banks, by the way. I love her. I think she's phenomenal. Um, But Tyra Banks was one of the first models to sort of challenge the status quo and say models can have big butts. You know, having a small waist and a big butt's okay. Having more curves is okay. But I honestly think that we've taken this body positivity and we've evolved it into something that is very unhealthy, like waist trainers and skinny teas and laxatives. And we've really just taken it from one extreme to the other, which I think is really unfortunate. Another thing that has been in the media for so long I can remember being like eight years old and seeing like really slim girls and thinking oh my god I want to be like that so being thin and being skinny and the desire to be this thin low body fat body has been a thing for a very long time now apps like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube have actually been exposed for having algorithms that are specifically geared to drive more attention to accounts which they believe to be physically attractive. We are overwhelmed with a huge amount of people who are thin flat abs, low body fat, and all of those things that sort of contribute to society's idea of what is the ideal body. Historically, models have been extremely thin, and this is still evident in the majority of clothing lines today. I'm sure when I mention models and thin and clothing lines, there's one brand that pops into your head immediately. Victoria's Secret and the Victoria's Secret annual fashion show. This fashion show is freaking huge with 7, sorry, 6.7 million people tuning in in 2016 alone. Now Victoria's Secret has been very transparent and they have gotten some backlash in the media about the fact that they value a homogenous body type. A homogenous body type means that everybody looks the same for their shows and they also refer to their models as Victoria's Secret angels. Now, seeing models like the Victoria's Secret Angels during the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show is enough to stimulate feelings of body dissatisfaction or a desire to lose weight or implanted ideas of the ideal or quote-unquote beautiful body type. But many of the angels have taken this a step further and have created both fitness and diet plans so that other people can look like them. These fitness and diet plans are very easily accessible via YouTube and blogs. Almost anyone can read up on how the angels have come to look the way that they do. And now, not I shouldn't say that all of these fitness and diet plans are unhealthy or are dangerous or raise red flags or promoting under eating, um, but some of them are, and a lot of these fitness and diet programs being promoted by the Victoria's secret angels are really promoting undereating fasting over exercising as a compensatory behavior following a cheat meal and they can also even if they're not promoting sort of this bad um They're not promoting under eating or fasting or over exercising. If they are promoting what someone may consider healthful eating, people can feel really freaking crap about themselves when they follow the Victoria's Secret 30 day um, six pack challenge or the Victoria's Secret what I eat in a day videos and then when they don't achieve or they don't look like a Victoria's Secret angel it can cause a lot of body dissatisfaction guilt shame um, not feeling good about yourself not feeling any sort of achievement and it's just I don't know I think it's I think it's really troublesome when we like try and convince people that if they do a certain thing they are going to look a certain way Online figures often become inspiration for a lot of people, and a lot of people start to desire um, a change in their body types. This developed into an online health trend called Fitness Inspiration, Fitspiration, or Fitspo, And these fitspo accounts typically promote what is the correct way to eat and the correct way to exercise to elicit a quote unquote correct body type. I found a study that analyzed the impact of this online diet and fitness culture and of their 180 participants, they found that 50% of the people desired to lose weight after looking at Fitspo accounts and improve their appearance. 50% of the participants also reported that they believe fitness influencers are a prime example of what is the healthy ideal. They represent what dedication, self-care, and hard work can do for your life in the way that you experience life. Now, 25% of the participants displayed adverse, so negative um, physical and mental health outcomes when they were unable to achieve that ideal or correct body type that the fitness influencers were promoting. Now, another influencer who is actually Canadian, uh, her name is Abby Sharp. She decided to give her two cents on this online fitness and diet culture and started to address a lot of the trending or fad diets that were going viral. Abby is a registered dietitian and uses evidence-based research to influence her videos. She takes these videos posted by very influential YouTubers or celebrities and breaks them down, outlining different macros, calories, nutrients, and just sort of health and the relationship with food in general. Now, Abby's videos are extremely important in this online world, as most of the time she discovers and exposes, if you will, that many influencers are promoting eating fewer than 1200 calories a day. They're not getting enough protein or carbs. And she's honestly just super honest about which influencers she feels are promoting disordered eating and which influencers may be doing a good job and just eating a normal, quote unquote, normal, healthful diet. I think having people like Abby online cracking the code to health and wellness who is an educated expert is super helpful. I personally love Abby Sharp's videos. She's kind of like very transparent, very honest, very real. And, you know, if someone's promoting something that is great, she's going to say that, yeah they're they're eating really well and they're encouraging people to have a good relationship with food but if someone is promoting something that's not so great and encouraging people to have a bad relationship with food she also really brings that to attention so I personally love Abby Sharp's videos and I have definitely watched some of the YouTubers that I follow I've watched their what I eat in a day or what I eat to um, what I ate to lose 30 pounds and then I've watched Abby Sharp's take on those specific videos. Videos, and she's really changed my opinion about what is healthful and what is not. I went back to the literature and I tried to see if I could find anything about this sort of pro-disordered eating influencers and their implications. And I found a study that, oh, goodness gracious, it's, it's challenging, so get ready found a study by Kathleen Custers, 2014, and they outlined that there are actually a lot of pro-anorexia and pro-eating disorder communities online. This horrifies me. Pro-anorexia, pro-eating disorder, and pro-acceptance is searched for on Google 13 million times per year. You guys know I'm super passionate about women's health and wellness and advocating for women's health. And saying that number of 13 million is really hard for me. I feel like we've just gone so far with health and wellness and fitness and influencing and bodies that we've just made so many women feel like their bodies are inadequate to the point where women are actually searching for eating disorders. These online communities, you guys, they're not support groups. They are not groups that are helping women overcome eating disorders. They're actually groups where people share weight loss tips, food diaries, tips for using laxatives and time intervals, and um, support messages to help each other continuously lose weight. So Custer's then went on to interview in another study. Um, she interviewed 711 children, grades 7 to 11, and 12.6% of them had visited pro eating disorder sites, um, and they did this to look for ways to become thin. That's great. Seven to eleven. You guys. These are young children accessing pro eating disorder websites, looking for ways to lose weight. Now, not. All pro-eating disorder websites are transparent and that's what they are. Oftentimes they disguise themselves as being um, health and wellness and fitness and they are subconsciously encouraging people to engage in disordered eating. Not only that, But when fitness and health influencers promote ways to lose weight, reduce cellulite, exercise more to burn calories, fat blasts, flat tummy workouts, and so on, they're contributing to this idea that healthy eating and exercising has everything to do with your appearance and nothing to do with your metabolic, physical, and mental health. I want to sort of introduce you guys to this concept that I learned last semester in my nutrition class about metabolically healthy versus metabolically obese. So in my nutrition class, uh, we talked about how BMI, our body mass index, and adiposity, which is fat content, may not be a correct measure of health. Um, And we may need to change this a wee bit. That is because someone who is technically classified as obese so they have a body mass index greater than 30 they can actually be metabolically healthy so that's that means that they essentially have no negative health implications or possible risk factors from having a high body mass index but there are also people who have a BMI greater than 30 who are metabolically obese There's people who have a BMI of 20, which is considered within the normal range. Um, They might be metabolically obese. They might be metabolically healthy. I also know that there are a lot of negative implications associated with being um, overweight or having a high body mass index because of adipokines, um, which are inflammatory markers that are released by fat tissue. Um you can also increase your risk of different types of cancers if you have a lot of body fat. You can increase your risk of getting type 2 diabetes, um, but there's also negative he- health implications with being too thin, such as differences or discrepancies or decreases in bone mineral density, which is extremely important. You want to have really dense uh, bones because you don't want to get osteoporosis. And a lot of the times people who are too thin may experience a loss in bone mineral density or they may not acquire sufficient bone mineral density during the acquisition phase. People who are too thin may experience amenorrhea, when, which is when you don't get your period. Um, I think it's greater than three months you don't get your period for three months in a row there's secondary amenorrhea primary amenorrhea there are a lot of different negative implications with being too thin there are negative negative implications with having a high body fat content a low body fat content Um, but there are also people who are really really thin like really, really, really thin who are very healthy. And I know a lot of people who are super thin, and that's just part of their genetics It's just part of who they are. They often get shamed and they get told to eat a burger and they sort of get picked on a wee bit. Um, when in reality, they may be very healthy. There's also people who are very thin who are not healthy. There's people who are of normal looking bodies. I hate the word normal so much. There are people who we would look at and think that they are healthy and they may not be healthy, but I think we need to seriously start paying attention to separating the terms health and appearance because health is not something that you can see. So, Knowing the biophysical risk factors, the psychological risk factors, and the sociological risk factors or implications regarding eating disorders and disordered eating, what can we do as an empire to address this topic? I personally don't think that telling people the negative implications of caloric restriction and extreme, extreme weight loss measures is the answer to this problem. I I just don't. I don't think that that would be very beneficial. I mean, ideally, we can scare people to death and tell them how if they decide to do extreme caloric restriction or if they decide to use laxatives or things like that, if we tell them, you know, you're damaging your bones, you're damaging your bowels, you may not you may become dependent on laxatives and have to take them for the rest of your life. You may experience osteoporosis down the road. You you may increase your likeliness of sudden cardiac arrest, kidney failure, ETC. Ideally if we tell people these things, it would solve the issue, right? But remember when I mentioned that people experience a loss of control or addiction by which they continue their habits despite being well aware of the negative consequences. So I don't really think that, you know, during grade nine gym class or during Eating disorder and disordered eating education, I don't think scaring people is the right way to go because we've clearly seen in the literature that people will do things despite knowing the negative consequences. I wish we could tell people, don't do this, you're essentially risking your life, but it's so much more complex than this. What we can do as an empire is we can, I seriously mean this, we can change the status quo. We can challenge pages that you see online that propagate this necessity to change our physical appearance. We can reach out to influencers, diet plans, and authors who are capitalizing and profiting off of our insecurities. And we can let them know what their content sort of is promoting. It's promoting a need to change. It's promoting an idea that... Thinner is healthier or eating this way is going to be healthier. They sort of really, really make us feel like our health is reflected by our physical appearance. Once again, I'm not saying that fitness influences are bad. I'm not saying that healthy eating and exercising is bad. But our motives for doing these things is extremely important. When we're exercising and eating healthy for the sole purpose of experiencing or achieving a specific body type, this relationship with food and exercise can be misconstrued. I always ask you guys... Sorry, my mom was talking... Um, I always ask you guys to participate in a challenge at the end of the podcast, and today your challenge is to put something on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and tag me in it so I can see, and let people know that health does not equal appearance, appearance, I said that weird, let's say that again. I want you guys to put something up on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and tag me in it and let people know that health does not equal appearance. And the next time you see someone promoting physical activity or healthy eating for the sole purpose of appearance, shoot them a message and let them know the negative implications that may be associated with the jargon that that they use if you're doing a fitness class at Good Life or at the gym or SoulCycle or wherever you do your group fitness classes, if you're an instructor, is, you know, giving encouraging words that are related to changing your appearance, I would kindly talk to them after the class and just let them know that health and fitness is a lot more than changing the way in which we look. Um, And it is more related to changing the way in which we feel and our metabolic health, cardiovascular health, psychological well-being and things like that. As the estrogen Empire, I truly believe that we have the potential to really challenge and change the status quo. So put it on your story. Health does not equal appearance. Spread the message. Share the knowledge. Build the empire. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a beautiful life.